All right, we are back. We're going to focus on some science topics in what time we have left to us on today's program. Uh, before I leave the subject of Lebanon, I want to talk a little bit about where science meets photojournalism. Uh, a few days back, the Reuters News Service said it, would, it had cut ties with a Beirut-based freelance photographer after finding he'd manipulated two photographs from the fighting in Lebanon. This has prompted emails, which no less than two people have sent me, titled Photographic Untruths in Lebanon Unveiled, which is a little piece put together showing that apparently uh, there's been some alteration of the photographs from Lebanon. In fact, they, they used both the examples of these photos by Adnan Hajj, one of which showed the aftermath of an Israeli airstrike on suburban Beirut. It had been manipulated using computer software to put uh, three plumes of black smoke where, in fact, only one was rising from a given building. The other showed an Israeli jet fighter over southern Lebanon dropping a flare, which had been manipulated to multiply the flare times three. The centerpiece of, of this item is, is that in several photographs from Lebanon, someone placed various stuffed animals or dolls into the foreground where you saw exploded, busted-up chunks of rubble that used to be in an apartment building. Well, someone apparently added a little human touch by putting a doll in there. You've just heard a first-hand report from Leila Anani from Lebanon describing seeing exactly something like that in reality. Now, maybe someone did to try to enhance the dramatic value of the photo by putting a doll, a Mickey Mouse or whatever, in the picture. But what gets me is that it's being circulated with the idea that we can't trust the reporting because someone's altering the photographs. Well, the rubble, the broken-down apartment building, the smashed-up, blown-to-bits infrastructure is real. And and in this 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 thing they're circulating, they're not even disputing that. They're just claiming they altered it by putting in a doll that, look, this doll has no dust on it. Now, we'll grant you, Adnan Hodge should not have photoshopped the, the picture to add a couple plumes of smoke. But it seems to me the central issue is that Beirut's on fire. Not that the photo made it look somewhat smokier than it actually was. And I think we'll we'll leave it at that. Here's a question for you, dear listener. Do you take antioxidants? Well, an awful lot of us do. I've taken vitamin E and vitamin C at times in the past. The theory is it neutralizes free radicals in your body, which do a lot of damage to tissue. Uh, they're a natural product of living in an oxygen-rich environment and really can't be avoided. But the theory is that if you can get enough antioxidants on board, you can fight some of that damage. Well, according to an article in the current issue of New Scientist magazine, which they're, which they're calling the antioxidant myth, scientific data, scientific trials uh, are just not backing up the notion that antioxidants do any good. In fact, a lot of studies are indicating they may do some harm. Said the magazine, since the early 1990s, scientists have been putting these compounds through their paces using double-blind, randomized, controlled trials, the gold standard for medical intervention studies. Time and time again, however, the supplements failed to pass the test. True, they knocked the wind out of free radicals in a test tube, but once inside the human body, they seem strangely powerless. Not only are they bad at preventing oxidative damage, they can even make things worse. Now, you know, it seemed like a good idea in theory. Everybody agrees that, uh, you know, a healthy diet makes a difference, uh, said the magazine. The conclusion is becoming clear. Whatever is behind the health benefits of a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, you cannot reproduce it by taking purified extracts or vitamin supplements.
A fascinating article, well worth your time to, to snag it in the magazine or look it up on the web. Do it. Another fascinating science article, we refer to Edie Lau's front page story on the bee from Monday, August 14th, about how um, people have devised a way to uh, put roofing tiles that are reflective in the infrared so that uh, temperatures in your attic can be 5 to 9 degrees cooler in the summer. And the interesting thing is, the tiles aren't necessarily white or, or really bright in coloration. They found a way to do this in the other part of the spectrum, infrared. We probably need to get Edie Lau on the show. She does some pretty good science writing there at the B, and um, maybe she can fill us in on some of the details on this. We are still at Radio Parallax trying to track down Stanford Ofshinsky's amorphous semiconductor strips for your roof, how to generate electricity by putting non-silicon-based electrical generation systems. And uh, research on that continues. We will have a follow-up, believe me. Another magazine we like uh, to read once in a while, Invention and Technology. Their summer 06 issue has a, uh, a couple-page article on the rather mundane but surprisingly interesting topic of kitty litter. Prior to 1946, when people kept cats inside their house, the cat box was filled with sand, or perhaps sawdust, shredded newspaper, or other cheap, readily available absorbent materials. Enter in 1946, H. Edward Lowe, Jr., recently discharged from the Navy. He was running a business in Michigan with his father that delivered coal and ice and supplied factories with industrial absorbance. The federal government had recently banned factories from using sawdust to soak up spills because it constituted such a fire hazard. So Lowe and Lowe had begun selling Fuller's Earth, which consists of hydrated ammonium silicates, as a substitute under the brand name Dry Spot. Turned out the industrial market for Fuller's Earth was limited, so Lowe tried selling it to farmers as a nesting material for chickens, with little success. Then in January, opportunity literally knocked on the door when his next-door neighbor, Kay Draper, asked for some sawdust for use in her cat's litter box. Lowe happened to have a large bag of Fuller's Earth in the trunk of his car, so he suggested that she try that. Other versions of the story I read in the past said that he assured her, oh, it would work great in the cat box, having no idea whether it would. But of course, as you no doubt know, Fuller's Earth turned out to be an excellent choice. Not only was it more absorbent than sand or sawdust, but it also trapped ammonium ions, which made it good at controlling odor. When the neighbor came back a few days later asking for more of the Fuller's Earth, Lowe realized he was onto something. And of course, within a few years, kitty litter was being sold across the country in supermarkets. And in 1990, Edward Lowe sold his business for $200 million. Along the way, the kitty litter brand uh, disappeared. The name had become a generic term for cat litter. When it comes to invention and marketing, this story reminds me of, uh, of the tale of uh, the man who was holding the board meeting at a dog food company. And the chairman of the board was not pleased by the statistics that were in front of him. He addressed the group and said, gentlemen... We're using the best meat and meat byproducts in our dog food. Our factories are clean and efficient. Our packaging is state-of-the-art. Our marketing is utilizing the best firms out there. And yet, the sale of our dog food continues to be sluggish. What's going on? There was silence for a moment, and then a man in the back of the room looked up and said, Dogs don't like it. Often going unmentioned in stories about H. Edward Lowe and the development of kitty litter is the fact that Cats liked it. 
All right, cover story on yesterday's Sacramento Bee, article by Robert S. Boyd, McClatchy, Washington Bureau. The International Astronomical Union, which is meeting in Prague, is debating over what a planet is and how many of them are orbiting our local star, the sun. Amazingly, astronomers can't agree what constitutes a planet. We mentioned this controversy a few weeks back, and, and we're leaning toward the probability that Pluto would be demoted, and we would now refer to the solar system as having eight planets. It looks as though it's not going that way. We thought things would go the way of Brian Marsden's uh, essay. Brian Marsden is an astronomer and director of the Minor Planet Center at Harvard University, and the big guy out there when it comes to naming stuff in the solar system. Writing in The Guardian, uh, Dr. Marsden a few weeks ago said... It's time we admitted that accepting Pluto as the ninth planet was a big mistake. In advocating a reduction of the official number to eight, Marsden notes that the number of planets has been reduced before. The ancients recognized seven, and in some languages, these are still equated with the days of the week. If you've ever studied Spanish, you may be aware that lunes, martes, miércoles, jueves, etc. refer to, respectively, the moon, Mars, Mercury, and Jupiter. In fact, they do in English as well, being named after Norse gods, who unfortunately I can't remember at the moment. But anyway, Marsden went on to say that after the Copernican Revolution, the objects associated with Sunday and Monday, which were the sun and moon, were dropped, and the Earth was added. So the total became six. William Herschel's discovery of Uranus restored the count to seven. The addition of four tiny bodies, Ceres, Pallas, Juno, and Vesta, early in the 19th century, raised it to 11. Most astronomy books were still counting 11 planets four decades later. Well, the astronomers are going to hash this out in Prague, and when they come to their final vote, we'll report it. We may bring back also uh, uh, Radio Parallax's own astronomical correspondent, our general manager here at KDVS, Drake Martinet, former head of the, uh, the astronomy club here at UC Davis. All right, our final item of the day. Mr. McMillan, would you please cue up some appropriate music? Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic point aboard this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailor. Dateline Baker Island in the Central Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Not far from where aviator Amelia Earhart disappeared almost 70 years ago. Apparently, the crew of the Coos 102, which is a Marshall Islands fishing boat, uh, which is operated by a, a Taiwanese crew, has radioed in to report that three Mexican fishermen lost at sea nine months ago have been picked up after drifting 5,000 miles across the Pacific. Said Eugene Miller, manager of the Coos Fishing Company, from a tele, in a telephone interview from the Marshall Islands, <laughs> what must be the understatement of the week, they were quite hungry. It's a long way from Mexico to here. These three caballeros had evidently been drifting since last November when their two outboard motors conked out off the coast of San Blas. While currents carried these guys from Mexico more than half the way to Australia, they survived on raw fish and captured seabirds. At the moment, the three erstwhile castaways remain aboard the Coos 102, whose crew is fishing for tuna in the waters between the Marshall Islands and the 33-island nation of Kiribati. 
The Coos 102 is scheduled to arrive in the port of Majuro in the Marshall Islands in about two weeks, according to officials, after which time the Mexican government's plan to fly them back to sunny Mexico. And Radio Parallax will wager it's, it's going to be a hell of a long time before those guys go out for sushi. I'm afraid to say that's it for today's program. We thank R.V. Scheid of the Sacramento News and Review, as well as eyewitness Layla Anani. We hope that we'll receive reports from both of them in future programs about what uh, is going on over in Lebanon and how that poor, devastated country can be rebuilt, perhaps with our help. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next Thursday at 5. Meantime, stay tuned for KDVS's fine musical programming, which resumes immediately, starting with Hometown Atrocities, hosted by Todd Yurick. To make the others comfortable in the tropic island nest. No phone, no lights, no motor car, not a single luxury. Like Robinson Crusoe, it's primitive as can be. So join us here each week, my friends, you're sure to get a smile. From seven stranded castaways here on Gilligan's Isle.